Welcome to How We Run, the podcast about nonprofit success. I'm Trent Stamp, CEO of the Eisner Foundation. And I'm Julie Lacature, and I help nonprofits with strategy, fundraising, and digital media. On today's episode, Trent and I talk about his favorite subject, starting a new nonprofit, and why he thinks people shouldn't do it. We also have Sonia Passi from Free From, who talks about the challenges she faced in starting her new nonprofit. All right, Trent, we're talking about your favorite thing, starting a new nonprofit. Oh, boy. Uh, so what's your typical response when people say, I'm, I have this great idea. I want to start a nonprofit organization that does this. What do you usually say to that? Please don't. And why is that? Because, A, there are too many nonprofits out there already. And the barrier to entry to starting a nonprofit is basically nothing. And if you can raise enough money to keep yourself in business, even if that means that all you do is raise enough money to pay yourself but not actually do any charitable work, then you can stay in business. So we have way too many nonprofits. And in most cases, there already is a nonprofit that does whatever it is that you're thinking about doing. They either do it really well, in which case there's really no space for you to do it, or they don't do it that well, in which case maybe you could lend your expertise and your fundraising to them and help them get going, given that they already have the infrastructure in place. But we really don't need another nonprofit in this country. I was accused by a friend of mine of when they said they were going to start a new organization of, of basically saying, do you know how hard it is? I don't think you want to do that. And they were like, you are a real Debbie Downer. And I was like, I think that's my greatest service. See, to me, the problem is that it's not hard enough. It's easy to write your letter off to the IRS. And if you scribble three or four of the keywords on the application, they will grant it to you because nobody wants to be accused of being anti whatever it is you're trying to do. So they will give you the tax exempt status. Once you have the tax exempt status, as long as you don't commit a crime, nobody comes in and takes it away from you, no matter how little you do over that period of time. And if you raise $20,000 and you decide that you need to pay yourself $20,000 for working so hard to raise the $20,000, you can do that and nobody seems to care and that $20,000 that could have been earmarked for another nonprofit that was actually having impact is gone. It's gone into the ether and it went into your pocket and that's fine, but I don't think anybody wanted to give to that nonprofit so that you could have a part-time job. So I wish it was harder to run a nonprofit, but it is hard and it's hard to raise enough money to have impact. It's enough money, it's easy to raise enough money to keep yourself in business, but it's not enough, it's not easy to raise enough money to actually do good things. And so that means that we have way too many nonprofits out there that are raising just enough money to sustain themselves, but not enough to have impact in their community. Um, so are you seeing this trend this year um, in 2018 of more new nonprofits? I feel like I'm hearing a lot of people starting causes and really becoming involved in ways they hadn't in past years. But are, what are you seeing? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, we're totally through the, you know, through the rabbit hole here with this president. Um, and I think that people are, are feeling like they need to resist or respond um, or retaliate um, or something um, in, in the sense that um, they feel compelled to act. 
And I just wish that more, more of them would look around and try to act within a currently existing organization, even if it means you're going to start your own separate division or program within that organization. But do you really need to have your own 501c3 infrastructure in place? Um, but I do think that this president um, and this current administration has led to a lot of people thinking that it's time for them to respond in some way or another. So we're talking today uh, with Sonia Passi, uh, who started an organization called Free From, which is a domestic violence organization uh, that focuses on getting people who are fleeing uh, gender violence issues um, financially stable, whereas most organizations are focusing on um, shelter and survival. Uh, she's really adamant about it being about financial stability and financial security. And one of the things that impressed me was that she did a tremendous amount of uh, calling, just cold calling organizations to see if they would take this on as a program. She said that she did this for about a year and she couldn't find anyone that was doing it or find anyone that wanted to say, yes, come into our organization and you should run this program there. Okay, so first of all, we need to make sure that we acknowledge that in this particular case, this may have been a worthwhile nonprofit oh, to start. absolutely. And that Sonia yes. may be the smartest, most <laughs> innovative, interesting person that's out there. Yeah. And I was not condemning no. her starting the organization. <laughs> I was upset about people starting yet another uh, organization for, you know, kids who have the mumps or something. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think so. The, there's still a I place think... for starting nonprofits, but please do me a favor and do what Sonia did. Look around do a census, figure out, is there a way to house this somewhere else? And if the answer is no, and you still feel like it's a compelling organization, then go ahead, yeah, start it. And I think, though, when I hear you talk about don't start your own nonprofit, you get frustrated in the same way I get frustrated, which is like, we see the work on the day-to-day -day basis. I see how many organizations look similar and are going after the same funding. And I see how frustrated they are uh, in doing the work and you just don't want that for that person. Oh, hundred percent. And I also feel, I also feel responsible for those that are already toiling in the sector, yeah. um, that have been there for a long time and are doing good work and had the same idea that you're having in some form or another 20 years ago, you know, they've finally gotten to a good place and do they need to spend a good chunk of their marketing development dollars trying to differentiate themselves from you, who some funders will see as the new, new thing. You know, they have skin in the game and they've been around for a long time. And a lot of times, you know, if they're struggling in some way or another, it's because of the challenges that are in the sector, not because they're not talented or that their idea isn't good. So um, I want everyone to be respectful before they start a new organization to look around and say, you know, is there someone here who came before me who actually is doing the same thing, but they're not going to make me CEO? In that case, maybe we should spend the money with them. So today I'm in the offices of Free From talking to Sonia Passi, founder of the organization. Sonia, welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Sonia, tell me in a nutshell, what is Free From? Yeah. Free From is a national organization based here in LA that whose mission is to create pathways to financial security and safety for survivors of gender-based violence. Um, so that every survivor has the opportunity to thrive and live free from abuse. We're really trying to move the domestic violence movement away from kind of short-term crisis intervention to thinking about long-term safety and security for survivors and 
the next generations of their family. And why do you think it needs to move? What's the problem with that short term? Yeah. Like, shouldn't we be helping people just escape bad situations? Yeah, absolutely. And also there has to be something that happens after that. So if you think of the domestic violence movement, it's about 45 years old. In 45 years, it has not really been able to move past helping people leave. And a big piece of that is one in four women in the United States will experience severe domestic violence in their lifetime. We're talking about a national crisis. And I think it's something like 4% of all giving goes to women's issues. Mm -hmm. So what that tells you is you have this huge national epidemic and you have very little funding going towards it. So what you do then as a movement is you, you just put out fires because that's all you can do because there's so many fires. Mm-hmm. And what Free Farm's coming in and doing and saying, that's all life-saving, but it's the same people going in and out of shelters. And it's often survivors breaking their own restraining order because the only way to put food on the table for their kids is to go back to the abuser. So what we have to do is... First, support people in getting out, which we've gotten good at doing, and then help them in actually rebuilding and creating a pathway forward for themselves. And that's kind of the missing piece that we're starting to um, integrate into the movement. Yeah. And when you talk to funders, they say, oh, not another nonprofit. Yeah, I completely why? agree. <laughs> you agree? Okay, you agree. So then why start another nonprofit? Yeah, I mean, I say I agree that there's too many nonprofits, and also this is the second nonprofit that I've started. Um, It feels very much like people have an idea and instead of doing the research to see if someone's already doing that, they start a nonprofit. Um, And that's a real problem. Uh, And for both of the nonprofits that I've started, the first thing that I did was see what else is out there and also see if anyone was interested in building this into what they were doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And only only at that point did I think, okay, this needs to be its own entity, at least for now. When you say um, to see if anyone was interested in building this into what they were doing, you're going to established organizations exactly. and saying, exactly. can I start this program? Exactly. And what was the response there? Um, I think that, I mean, I think about in the future maybe starting a company that actually specializes in nonprofit mergers. I just think it's a concept that people aren't familiar with. They have their agenda, they have their mission, they have their funding and they have a limited budget. Mm -hmm. So to bring something new in feels um, overwhelming or they're not yet convinced by the idea or it wasn't their idea. Um, Kind of all kinds of these things are at play. Um, But I do, a lot of people come to me and they say, I really wanna start a nonprofit. And my first question is, have you looked to see if anyone else is doing that? Um, And if they are, couldn't your efforts and energy and resources be better spent either supporting that, working with that, um, or uh, doing something else. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's always very important to me as I'm thinking about doing this work, even as we build out programs within the organization. Is anyone doing anything like that? And if they are, why do we need to do it? Right. And so I'm always very clear that I'm only going to do what's not being done. Um, and I... I I really try to make sure that I'm never so attached to the work that it's about me and not the work. What I would love is that in five or ten years, Free From becomes kind of irrelevant because we've integrated the work into the movement and so it doesn't need to be done. Or there's other 
bigger play players that can uh, adopt our work or whatever it may be. I just I always want it to be about the work, not about people's payroll, not about um, kind of my resume or my voice in the movement. Um, and that's, I think, where people get tripped up. And that's, I think, why funders and foundations and so forth that are seeing the landscape are like, God, not another nonprofit. Yeah. So tell me what, where all of this work got you. What's free from doing that no one else is? Yeah. We have a couple of um, areas that we've been working on. The first thing, you know, last year we started with an, a pilot entrepreneurship program for survivors. It was helping survivors to build financial capacity through small business entrepreneurship. Um, we worked with 24 survivors across three cities last year in our pilot. 100% of those businesses made a profit in the first month that they launched. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 12 months later, none of those clients have returned to an abusive situation. None of them. And instead, they're investing in safe housing, health and wellness of themselves and their children. Um, but we ended the year with a huge wait list for our services. And so the big question for me was, how do we scale this? Because I could hire another person who could maybe see another 25 to 50, but I can't, I can't keep doing that indefinitely. And my intention always was this, to be a national organization. And so what we realized was the smartest way to do this is now to start training domestic violence organizations to do this work themselves. Um, and so we're, we're building the curriculum right now. We've been approached by 60 organizations in 10 states wow. that want us to come and do this work with them, which is to, sh to teach their uh, staff how to integrate financial capacity building work into what they're doing. So they're not just doing a safety plan with their clients, they're doing a financial safety plan. When their clients come to them and they say, the only thing that I need right now is income, or the first thing they need right now is income, they're able to either support them in um, finding a job, building up their skills, uh, making use of all the shared economy jobs out there. And so really kind of integrating that, thinking about when somebody leaves, how do they protect their finances so that, um, you know, doing credit freezes, bank account freezes, that stuff isn't done. Um, building their credit, repairing their credit, thinking about saving and budgeting, thinking about repairing their relationship to money after they've experienced so much financial abuse and trauma. Mm -hmm. I think that's a big part of it. I think people don't realize the lengths an abuser will go to to control a person. And exactly. that often includes, you know, not giving them access to resources, exactly. especially financial resources. Yeah. And for us, it, you know, we've spent a lot of time thinking about why is this work not done by the movement? And part of it is people are at capacity. But another big thing is the people that are working in the movement with survivors are themselves typically survivors um, and more often than not overworked, underpaid and financially insecure. Mm -hmm. So our whole methodology of teaching is we're going to work with each trainee to build up their own financial position whether that's figuring out how to make an extra hundred bucks a week or getting on a debt repayment plan or building up their credit using you know credit cards and uh, lending circles and other strategies so that a they're internalizing this knowledge and they're not just learning it as a curriculum and b they're able to really approach this work with their clients from a place of abundance not a place of scarcity and i think that is that scarcity mindset is something that has really held the nonprofit movement back, and especially the domestic violence movement. 
When did you start the organization? Yeah. When was that? Uh, I started concept conceptualizing it in late in August 2015. Um, it was not until November 2016 that I started to take a salary. I kind of you know officially became an employee, and I hired my first employee, or, or my second employee, I suppose. And uh, we started to okay, we kind of opened our doors and started to take um, take on clients. And from the moment of kind of thinking this is what I wanted to do or kind of putting a name to it, um, that first year and a bit was hiring a board of directors. Um, I taught, must have talked to about you know 50 survivors about what they felt like they needed. I probably talked to 50 organizations about where the gaps were and why they weren't doing it and what they felt were the obstacles to them doing it. Um, I had a number of mentors from doing this the first time. Um, and so I went to them and was like, am I thinking about this right? This is what I want to do programmatically. Uh, so I, I, it was both putting together the board of directors, but also putting together an advisory board of people in the movement who I really respected. Um, and then starting to raise the money to actually get going. Yeah, so let's start with that first part. Yeah. Um, board of directors and an advisory board. Mm-hmm. Um, how? How did you build them? And what were you looking for? <laughs> yeah. Um, for my advisory board, I was looking for people who had uh, kind of their pulse on what was what needed to change and what was missing and where we needed innovation in the movement. Um, so executive directors of national organizations, policy directors of national organizations, um, kind of experts in, in niche areas of the movement. Um, and I just asked them I said look there's not going to be a meeting every month or everything being on my advisory board means that you are giving your time to troubleshoot ideas with me get coffee if I'm in town chat on the phone if I'm not um, and really think through uh, strategy sounds like you were really specific with what the requirements were and what you expected yeah everyone's so busy Mm -hmm. um that if, you, if all it is is just being a sounding board, most people are really eager to do that. They, they want to pass on their knowledge. Um, so that wasn't, it was not hard to do, thankfully. Um, and the board of directors was a little different. I was looking for people who both had, um, were kind of at a position in their career where they had money to donate. They had a network of people who also could donate. Um, they were connected to pro bono services of different kinds that Free From might need, uh, legal, marketing, accounting, um, and they had kind of they had either a um, they'd served on a board before, or for example, like lawyers are really good and really diligent about reading documents. Bankers are really good and really diligent about reading financial statements and looking for red flags. Um, so I was looking for kind of a range of skills. I also didn't want to have uh, only lawyers um, or bankers. I wanted to have some people who were in business and tech because that was always going to be a, an important component of what we did. That's great. I think something that you mentioned in there that I think is very smart is you were looking for people that had served on boards before. Yeah. How important did that end up being? Um, my first round of board members had not served on boards before. Um, I think this is this was the case, the first organization that I started, 
When you first put together your board of directors, you're going to people and you're saying, please be on this board. Hopefully by the time you start to bring on kind of your next board members, the organization's got enough of a, a reputation um, that either they're excited, you don't have to convince them to join the board, they don't, you don't have to convince them of your ideas, um, or you have board members who will bring on people from their network. And that's really was the second round of board members that we brought on. And they typically had more experience. Um, Did I that had, make a difference in how the board functioned? You know, I think that I was actually very fortunate in that um, the people that I asked to be on the board were so ready to take on this kind of an adventure. Um, it's a, it's, it was a, it, the last two years have been incredibly hands-on. Um, that has meant, you know, it's not like serving on the board of the National Alzheimer's Association. It's very much in the weeds, figuring it out. Uh, all of my board members have surprised themselves at how uh, incredibly successful they have been at fundraising. Um, and arguably, I would say that I didn't, I didn't feel like we had any kind of, uh, we were held back because we didn't have that experience on the board. I think because a, a number of my um, board members are kind of managing directors at banks or partners at law firms, this idea of fiduciary duty and kind of the responsibility you have to a corporation was not new to them. Mm -hmm. I think if they had never served on the board and they also hadn't held these kinds of positions within their profession, it might have been a little harder. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. A lot of founders I talk to will describe their first board as being um, thinking that their job is to brainstorm ideas. Yeah. And no, I was always action. very clear. Because I had started an organization before, I was very clear with everyone that, first of all, they have to keep me in check. They have to, you know, they're the balance to me, the checks and balances to me. Um, but they are not, there's a separation between the day-to-day and their role, and a big piece of their role is, in addition to the fiduciary duties, is fundraising. Mm -hmm. And everybody, this is a fundraising board, and they know that, and um, they're excited by that. That's great. So yeah. let's talk about that. How? What was the first money that came in, <laughs> and where did it come from, and how did you, how did you get it? Yeah. The first money that we brought in, uh, I actually, it was. Fall of 2015, I really was not sure how I was going to bring in money for this. I was talking to a lot of people about it. They got it, but they got it at like a hundred, a hundred and fifty dollar level. Mm -hmm. So I was like, I need to do something. Um, and so what I ended up doing was designing a holiday card that said "Peace, Love, and Justice for All" that I designed on my computer and had them printed, um, and I sold to friends and family and everyone else put it online and that's how we brought in the first uh, $13,000 selling holiday cards uh, selling holiday cards and some people were like look I don't write holiday cards but here's a hundred bucks but it was the it was the uh, the reason they responded to the email yeah. or whatever it may have been and was the pitch that you buy these holiday cards and something good happens? It was, you know, um, this is raising money to start this organization. Okay. Um, it cost very little, actually, to print them. Um, but I think people liked... It was... Um, 
a difficult time politically, and I think people really liked this idea of sending a holiday card that didn't just say season's greetings. Uh-huh. Um, we actually now do them annually, and they've become a they've become a a fun end of year fundraiser for us. But that was still only thirteen thousand dollars. That was not enough to you know bring on any employees. Then the next kind of big moment that I had, I held a fundraiser. It was a volleyball tournament on the beach in Santa Monica. Um, it was $1,500 per team, and I, I went to law firms and corporations to participate. I look back on it, because we've just did our third annual one this year. We had no staff. It was like me, we had, no, we had f- six board members at that point. None of them were in LA. Um, it was me, my wife, and all of our friends putting on a volleyball. I don't play volleyball. Um, <laughs> Why did you pick volleyball then? Because I wanted to pick something that was... I had uh, interned at law firms in my law school days, and everything is like a gala or a dinner or a drinks thing, and mm-hmm. I wanted to do something that was more active and healthy and um, family-friendly. Mm-hmm. Um and we brought in, I think, close to $20,000 at that event. And actually, my current board chair came to that event. He was playing on one of the teams. I made a pitch. He had been a DA in the domestic violence unit in uh, Boston mm-hmm. and came up to me and said, can I make a donation and donated $1,000. And as anyone does when someone gives you your first $1,000 in one go, I followed up and we had lunch. And he joined the board of directors. Wow. And that was really a, a critical moment for us. But again, still, I've got, you know, at this point, $33,000 in the bank. The huge thing that was a game changer for us was uh, the Allstate Foundation every year does a domestic violence awareness month fundraising challenge uh, called the Purple Purse Challenge. Uh, it happens every October. It lasts a month. They invite a domestic violence, or, or you apply to uh, be a part of it. There's usually anywhere from 100 to 300 organizations participating. And it's basically raise as much money on CrowdRise as you can in a month. Mm-hmm. Um, and we raised $130,000 that month. And we uh, therefore won, became second. So we won $50,000 in prize money. But each week they had bonus prizes. So, you know, the two organizations that raised the most money this week at $5,000 uh-huh. each. Yeah, pretty typical, like, all, giving. Yeah, yeah. We won all the bonus prizes. Every single week? Every single week. So we ended up getting 80000 in prize money, and we raised 130. Holy moly. Yeah. And I, for you. Again, I look back on it. I had no staff. My board were incredible, but I literally just didn't sleep for a month. And I emailed everyone and I, I know from doing this in the past that it's one one-on-one emails it's not group emails it's not social media that works when you're asking people to give so I must have been emailing about a hundred people a day and then following up with them two weeks later um, and hitting refresh on the numbers all the time uh-huh. um, and we were definitely the youngest definitely the smallest organization competing um, so that was really exciting and gave us a tremendous amount of momentum, particularly with individual donors. And were you using a lot of your own network at this point? Because you had like maybe a list of people that had participated in the volleyball tournament. Yeah, sort of. I, I was going to, I did, you know, exhausted friends 
definitely anyone I'd ever met in relation to Free From. But I also, you know, I went to Berkeley Law for, uh, for my JD. I went on the website and looked at their list of alum and just started looking for their email addresses. So you're doing cold emails and email, too. Oh, a lot of cold wow, emails. Wow, what hustle. And it was, hi, I'm Sonia. You know, I graduated 2013. Um, this is what I'm doing. Would so appreciate your support as a fellow alum. And I raised a couple of grand just from doing that. And then people just got really into it. They got really excited watching the numbers. They got really invested in it. They wanted their fifty k, their fifty dollars to mean that we got fifty k. I had to be. I wouldn't even say I had to be creative. That was part of it, but I just had to be relentless. Yeah. That was October twenty sixteen, and then round about the same time, I applied for the Echoing Green Fellowship. I was selected as a finalist, and during that uh, interview process, I met the executive director of the Roy and Patricia Disney Family Foundation, who had who was based here in LA, but we met in New York. And I don't know, actually, I should, I should ask her, I don't know how she ended up getting connected to me, but she requested a meeting with me at the Echoing Green interview day. Uh, and we talked for a little bit, and she ended up bringing us in to apply for a grant. Um, and it was a very rigorous, I'm so grateful to her for this, it was a very rigorous application process. And she really mentored and coached me through it. They ended up giving us a seventy thousand dollar grant. Wow! And that was that was kind of the mark that you know, if purple purse was the moment that we solidified our uh, credibility with individual donors, that was the moment where we solidified our credibility with foundations, um, because I think they're very well respected in LA as having this rigorous process and it not being easy to get a grant from them. And so that, I think, uh, sent a signal to other foundations that we were worth investing in. That's amazing. Yeah. And at that point, you were able to say, here's my staffing plan. Here's what we're exactly. doing. Exactly. Yeah. Year. And at that point, it really um, took off. And that's when both we had, we started to get, uh, we started to have numbers to show our impact and stories to show our impact. Um, but also the, the, the the pitch to funders just became easier each time. Yeah. How did you, so it strikes me that, especially after the Allstate Challenge, yeah. you then all of a sudden had, how many don- How many individual donors? That first year, I think we had about 1,500. So 1,500 people. How do you keep them involved, follow up with them? Yeah. Because I think sometimes when you're a small organization, you can kind of get into the, the mode of operation of, Oh, it's been six months since we've talked to them. Yeah. Are they lost? Yeah. yeah. So what were what were the things you did to retain those yeah. people? Um, everybody that donated, I followed up. <laughs> I remember doing this. Everybody got a tax letter. So even if it was a $10 donation, they got a tax letter and then an email from me, which was a lot of tax letters. Crowdwise sends one anyway, but I wanted to send one on Freeframe's letterhead. Yeah, I wanted I wanted everyone to like we couldn't have done it without every single person's donation, and so I wanted them to know that. I'll, and what I do is I make time each month to follow up with donors and share kind of a, a story that I think, based on what I know to be their interests or their reason for supporting Free From, something that we've done in that area that I can sh- I can share with them, and they can um, really know that this is happening because of them. Um, in addition to that, we send out a newsletter once a month where we share our progress. 
I would um, assume the newsletter is a mass email. <laughs> you're, you're, not exactly. doing, you're not continuing to do one-on-one emails. No, I, I do. I do one-on-one emails for about 50 of our donors. Um, and then we have our newsletter that goes out once a month. Um, and I get really great feedback on that, which is wonderful to get. Um, and then we started to build up our social media and really build uh, relationships with donors that way. Um, this So that was 2016's Prep Opera. 2017, we actually won. We came first. So we raised 180 and we won 100 and we won all the bonus prizes again. Oh my God. So we got 120 in uh-huh. prize money. But last year we had uh, almost 4,000 individual donors. Wow. Um, and a lot of those donors were 10 to $15 and they... Um, are very engaged on social media and are just really excited that they're able to do something and they they like to see the progress um, kind of in real time on social media. And so then do your donors know that this is the big activity in October that you're going to do? Yeah. And so you're, so that's you're not doing asks throughout exactly. the year? Exactly. Kind of I only do out. asks my individual donors once a year. Okay. All of the, all of, everyone on the board gives, everyone on the board gives in October and they go out to their networks in October and so we might have conversations with individual donors before that um, I will say the only caveat is is uh, major giving donors um, who are usually either writing a check or p- perhaps making a stock donation that doesn't happen in October but besides that everything's happening in October um, and then I don't do like for me I think it's rare December is actually quiet on the fundraising front. Um, it's not where I do my big push. Our push is in October. So no Giving yet. Tuesday, no year. Exactly, no Giving Tuesday. Um, so people know we're coming to them once and we're coming to them in this month because this is when we really believe we can leverage and maximize their impact. That's great. Yeah. Um, does that feel risky at any point to say like we're, we have all of our eggs in this one basket? Very much so. Yeah. But I think that as we grow, I say very much so because it, what it means is that... <laughs> July, August, September is uh, when we have the lowest amount of money. Yeah, no buy. buying any staplers. Right. You better take exactly. care of your pens. Right? Definitely no buying any staplers. Um, but what I'm really working on doing is um, creating a major giving strategy and a foundation strategy. We've also started to do some FIFA service work now, and we're growing that. Creating a strategy such that Although individual giving is quiet until October, everything else is still very active um, and arguably um, more active in kind of the first half of the year. Um, I also just hired a vice president of institutional advancement. You know, my goal is to never have a quiet month for fundraising. Um, And so that's what we have to actively create since we're targeting individual giving in October. You you actually have another revenue stream, I think I saw on your website, Gifted. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So in April of this year, we launched Gifted by Free From, which is a social enterprise. What happened was we worked with our clients to start their businesses and a number of them who were in the product space had these incredible products, um, particularly in the bath, beauty, body space, that were that are all natural, um, often using organic ingredients, incredible scents, stuff that I would buy, stuff that I would expect to see in kind of um, bigger stores. Because they'd often left behind everybody they knew, they didn't have like a you know friends and family initial customer base. 
Also, they didn't feel comfortable putting themselves online because they were really concerned for their security. Sure. So we did a couple of market days. The first one, the mayor actually hosted at his house. The second one we did as a Valentine's Day market at the beginning of this year. And our clients were selling out. So it wasn't just me that thought they were great. Other people thought they were great. And so Gifted was really, let's use our um, network and and the, the name of Free From to support these clients in building very real wealth for themselves. And so what Gifted does is we sell curated self-care gift boxes. The products in each box are handmade by survivors here in LA. So 70% of the price of the box goes directly to the entrepreneurs who make the products. Mm -hmm. 15% of that money is used to employ survivors for a living wage of $20 an hour to do all the packaging, shipping, and handling for the store. 5% 5% is to pay for packaging, and then 10% of every box comes back to free from to support more survivors. So far, we have done almost 50,000 in sales, um, and we're, we're gearing up now for kind of an exciting holiday sales season. And my goal is for it to grow and you know both create wealth for our clients, allow us to employ more survivors and provide jobs, but also for it to grow into being a re- very real revenue source for free from. I'd like it to be at least 10% of our revenues coming in that way. We're also going to continue to do the holiday cards. And then we have, I mentioned earlier, the trainings that we're doing. A lot of those are creating FIFA service opportunities for us. And so that's becoming a very real revenue stream as well. That's great. That's really, it's um, it's nice to see how it's diversified, yet yeah. very tied to the program. Yeah. It doesn't feel like diversified funding sources that require you to do a whole bunch of right. different activities. It's very tied right. into your mission. FreeFarm gets no government funding. But what that means is, because we're not getting kind of these big checks from um, the federal or state government, is that we have to be really both relentless and creative in diversifying our funding streams. I like how you casually started a greeting card company. So, like, <laughs> I did not talk enough about yeah. your, your casual forays into very profitable businesses. I was like, <laughs> I have to figure out how to get to like a paper paper source or something like that. Oh, and to have them distributed? We should get them distributed. Oh, gosh, that's a great idea. I know. I, know, I, yeah. I realized this morning. I always think about it. I'm like, it gets to August, and I'm like, oh, it's time to think about the holiday cards again. So what's the plan for this October? We're going to go next level. We obviously want to win again. Uh, I have, I've been working with donors throughout the year who've committed funding that they're going to kind of give um, during the season. We're doing a Battle of the Corporate Bands fundraiser in New York on October 24th, Amazing. which we're excited about. So that will bring in both sponsorship funding, tickets, and also it's going to be a it costs a dollar for to vote for your favorite band, um, and so all that money will come through CrowdRise. Um, but we've got some great companies involved. We've got Morgan Stanley, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, BlackRock, Sony, a couple of the law firms as well, Quinn Emanuel, probably Proskauer, Rose. So that's going to be exciting, um, and that's kind of where we're. That's going to be our big event for the month. Our donors are waiting. They're like looking forward to it. And we had such a close win last year. 
we ended up winning by $700. So, you know, the first year we did this, we had maybe 10 people raising money for us on CrowdRise. Last year we had about 15. This year I think we're going to have closer to 25. Excellent. And so everyone's really getting into Is it. Is there a place where someone can go to your website and sign up for more information so they can be part of this team? <laughs> uh, you can email me, uh, Sonia dot passy at freefarm.org but also if you go to the website uh, there's a contact form and that email will come straight to me as well excellent so you still have your hustle on and you're still you betcha doing one-on-one emails absolutely <laughs> i mean it's really it's really important i think to build the the one-on-one connection with people it's not people are giving their money but they're really investing in you and your ideas and i want to be very respectful of that yeah i hear sometimes um, from a lot of different organizations of like what does someone get for a donation? And I think we are really quick to overlook. They get the involvement. Yeah. And they get they get to know that they're a part of it. I mean, yeah, you get to be part of something. We couldn't do this work without the people that donate and support it. And and so the the thing that you get is to know that you know X, Y, or Z happened because you invested in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really it's. It's very, I think, it's very important, I think, to see giving as an investment. I, as someone who is also donating to organizations, I think about what do I look for. So it's very important to me to really message to our donors that we are doing everything we can to do this in the most efficient way possible. Um, and that means leveraging technology, that means scaling through training, that means creating online resources. Uh, doing policy work to create that kind of big structural change. But I really want people to know that when they're when they're giving to Free From, that money is going to go as far as it possibly can because that's what we're committed to. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate well, thank it. Thank you. It was mm-hmm. such a pleasure. <laughs>
Why do you think that happened? I suspect that it's either that they felt that they were right. Let's be fair. Um, they, you know, they, they looked around and said, I don't see a need for that for whatever reason. Um, and let's give them the benefit of the doubt that their intentions were pure. And then I suspect that others just didn't see a true market for it. You have to ask yourself in the nonprofit world, every time you go to create a new organization or create a new program, who's going to pay for this? Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's traditional foundations or individuals or people on Facebook or the government when you provide services that the government's not providing. But sometimes it's through earned income or those types of things. But if you look around and you can't figure out who's going to pay for this particular service, I don't care how good your idea is. You know, it's, it's just not going to survive. What is a good way to figure that out to say who is going to pay for this? to ask people if they would pay for this. Um, absolutely. You know, I mean, I'm sure Sonia had that. I'm sure she got to a point where she realized that there were people who would pay for it That's right. in some form or another. But by doing the time and doing the contemplation and being thoughtful for a year, she responded to any criticisms that I would have. She also talks about the amount of cold calling she did at the beginning just to find anyone that would fund any part of this program. Have you been the recipient of a cold call? Sure. Uh, it happens what, all the time. It usually, is, yeah. it, usually I try to put a, a barrier to entry in place by having someone else answer the phone. Yeah. My cold calls usually happen in person. Ah, so um, someone. They find you they somewhere. They just pop up at an event. At an event or so, in the elevator or walking down the street or any of those types of things. Has a little that happened to you walking down the street? Sure. <laughs> someone behind a trash can outside your office something they're just waiting perfect for you. i like i like their tenacity which i don't i don't mind actually I, you know i say no for a living and so i actually admire the effort sometimes well what makes someone stand out when they're doing that i think it's it's there's no way of getting around that being kind of an awkward conversation but what makes someone stand out i think the first thing is that they know what you do and that's not meant to be flattering in any way whatsoever. Mm -hmm. But you know we fund only intergenerational programs um, and we fund only in southern california so if somebody calls me and they do environmental work in Denver, you know, it wouldn't matter how good the program is. Even if I wanted to make an exception, I'm confused why you're calling me, what you're talking about, what's going on here. You got to at least be ready on the first sentence to say, I know you only fund intergenerational programs in Los Angeles, but let me tell you about something that's going to make you change your rules completely. Um, but people who just aren't ready for that type of conversation because they don't know what you do, they just want to tell you about what they do, we're probably done because I'm looking for a partnership mm -hmm. and I want you to know what we do and I want you to tell me why something I already fund is probably similar to what that you do or why something I already fund isn't as good as what you do. I don't mind that conversation. I find that amusing. But it's important for you to know what it is I do. And then I think that, you know, after that, you know, this is just, you know, business 101. I'm looking for passion um, and I'm looking for somebody who knows their numbers and knows their stuff. So, you know, it's okay to be personable. You know, it's okay to be funny. But if you if you know what I do and you've got a three-minute elevator speech, I'll listen every time. So there's no one type of information you want to hear from somebody. It's more that you want to see the connection that they're making to you and like the, the bridge between their work and your work. We're going to be partners. If I decide to fund you, if our program staff decides to fund you, we need to have a good working relationship. It doesn't mean we're going to go out for drinks and go out for bowling. It just means that I'm going to be confident in your abilities. I'm going to like where you're going. I like your leadership style. And I know that you'll take my phone call because you don't think I'm a total idiot. Um, and we're going to work together in the coming year. So I just need to know that, you know, that, that you get it um, and that I'm going to be proud to invest in you.
A question from a listener. Why do many foundations require you to be in business for five years before funding you? I don't think you have that kind of requirement, Ed. We don't. We actually have a smaller grants program up to $25,000, which can be for organizations that are brand new, um, even, because we want to be entrepreneurial. We want to reward people. We want those cool new ideas. Every foundation is risk averse. I, you know, the, I can defend a, an underperforming grant and no problem. You know, they didn't quite get to where we thought they were going to get and we won't fund them anymore. But, you know, it's not my fault. It's hard to fund a disaster or defend a disaster grant. And so I'm not so sure that I need five years of data to prove that you're not going to do a disaster, but it inoculates me a little bit and lets me know that if market forces haven't killed you in five years, the odds are that you're probably going to be around for the duration of my grant. So what would constitute a disaster? Theft. (laughs) <laughs> fraud, okay. corruption. Right. Um, it's not not performing at the grant. Yeah. As long as you're trying and you have good, smart people who are doing the best, not every grant that we make works. But a disaster grant is that one, which I'd be embarrassed to read about in the front page of the LA Times. And that's not because you just didn't achieve the societal goals that you aimed for. It's because you took the money and bought yourself a beach house. And we would assume that um, that you don't encounter that that often. We haven't yet. Knock oh, on wood. Well, very good. Um, and we will. And I think the board of directors has a big role in making making sure that that governance is there, so that a good board knows everything that's going on with yeah. the organization. So yeah, absolutely. Well, good. Well, we're going to talk about boards of directors in next week's episode. Can't so. wait. That's all for today's episode of How We Run. Please check out goodwaysinc.com to find past episodes of this podcast and other tips about working in nonprofit. If you have any questions you want me to ask a funder on this podcast, you can tweet me at goodwaysinc. Please subscribe to How We Run on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and leave us a rating and review. Thank you for listening. I'm Julie Lacature, and we'll see you next week for another new episode.